You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more, including looking for, finding, and listening to all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all my podcasts free and independent. First up is a story by Connor Harney. This is published at Jacobin.com. And this is from July 28. And I specifically note that because a couple of follow-up articles will have further updates on this particular story. The Democratic Party is trying to deny the Green Party access to the ballot in North Carolina. I'm not a Green Party supporter, but I'm a plaintiff in a lawsuit fighting back because Democrats are trying to stamp out democracy in my state. Back in April, as I strolled through Bond Park in Cary, North Carolina, admiring the baubles and kitsch on display at the local Spring Arts and Crafts Festival, I noticed a man with a clipboard collecting signatures. Having been the man with the clipboard in the past, I decided I would save him the trouble of approaching me and go to him. He said he was with the Green Party and politely requested that I help get them ballot access for the midterm elections. Despite some of the weirdness I've experienced from Green supporters before, I bear them no ill will. More importantly, I don't believe that being a little kooky should limit your access to democratic institutions. Thinking nothing of it, I gave him my signature and went back to pushing my son's stroller. Hours later, I noticed he was still at it, standing in the sweltering southern springtime heat, asking strangers for their signature, while I enjoyed some brews inside in the shade. I admired his hustle. When I innocuously signed that petition, I could not have imagined that three months later I would be drafting a declaration that would be used in a legal complaint against the North Carolina State Board of Elections. But here we are, and I'm in shock. I'm shocked not only by how difficult it is for third parties to get ballot access in the United States, but also by the events that unfolded next, demonstrating the lengths to which the political establishment will go in order to block that access. On June 25, 2022, the day after the historic Roe v. Wade decision was overturned by the Supreme Court, I received a text message from an individual who identified himself only as Drew. He texted to ask me to remove my name from the petition that I signed. Drew was concerned that if the Green Party candidates were allowed on the ballot, they would take votes away from the Democrats and what he assured me was an election where too much was at stake. Having heard that for just about every election in my lifetime, I was unconvinced and refused to remove my name. Thinking the ordeal was over, I went about my day. 
The next day, a young woman came to my door claiming to represent the State Board of Elections. She gave the same spiel as Drew, qualifying her argument by claiming to be nonpartisan, which on its face is a spurious statement from someone worried about splitting the Democratic vote. I responded again that I would not be removing my name from the petition. She tried a few more times to secure my compliance, but I continued to decline. My incredulity mounting, I asked her why the Democrats were concerned about the Green Party in the first place. In North Carolina, Greens won 0.2% of the vote in 2020. Chasing down people who signed a petition to allow ballot access to a party that took one-fifth of 1% of the vote in a general election seems like an incredible waste of time and resources. But if nothing else, this squandering of money and manpower speaks to the combination of the Democrats' desperation and their lack of political strategy. The party is heading into the midterms on the heels of the recent Roe reversal amid rapid inflation and facing an impending economic recession. Having seemingly given up on its flawed but nevertheless robust Build Back Better plan, the Biden administration continues to rest on the same laurels that got the president across the finish line in the first place. He is not Donald Trump. But the distinction may not be enough to secure re-election. A recent opinion poll has Biden sitting at 1% below Trump on his worst days. Despite the gravity of this situation, the Democratic Party seems committed to inaction on every front. Tepid doesn't even begin to describe the party's response to the nation's crises. Without even a milk toast program, the Democrats are reduced to petty electoral games, like disenfranchising a marginal slice of the electorate. I say all of this not as a staunch supporter of the Green Party or their candidate for Senate in North Carolina, Matthew Ho, but as someone who believes in the need for a party independent of either Democrats or Republicans, one that boldly and effectively advances the interests of the broad working class. Such an organization will not materialize out of nowhere, nor do I think the Greens are that organization, but if the United States is ever to see a party that explicitly prioritizes the interests of the vast working class majority over the tiny wealthy minority, that will require securing ballot access outside the bipartisan establishment. We need to create as much room to maneuver in the electoral sphere as possible. Broadening the scope of American democracy should be our aim, and this is why, whatever our political differences, I lend my voice against attempts to disenfranchise Ho and the Greens. Ho is right when he says, quote, This case will determine whether the political establishment can abuse its power to stop another party from participating in elections. One major difference I have with the Greens is my belief that contesting elections is not enough to build an organized and class-conscious constituency for an effective third party. We also need to organize workers as workers and support worker-led organizing efforts that are already underway. The union drives at Amazon and Starbucks are proof that great things can be accomplished from the grassroots, and the victories workers secure through collective action can extend far beyond the workplace. They can illustrate the power workers have when they stand together, power that in the long run can permit them to put their thumbs on the proverbial political scale. When it comes time for political action, where will those empowered workers go? Will they go to the Democratic Party, a party that pays lip service to pro-worker legislation, even though it actively participated in the evisceration of social programs 
and dismantling of the labor movement over the last half century? Or will workers choose to go it alone if we don't defend the right of third parties to exist? They won't have a choice. And here's a piece with more on the background of the battle for the Green Party of North Carolina to appear on the ballot. This is by Eric Bazal Emil and is published at Reason.com. The North Carolina State Board of Elections, NCSBE, voted unanimously on Monday to recognize the North Carolina Green Party, NCGP, as an official registered political party in the state. The decision marks another twist in what the North Carolina Green Party claims is a concerted effort by North Carolina Democrats to prevent Green candidates from appearing on the November 2022 midterms ballot. Under North Carolina law, parties must obtain 13,865 real signatures from registered voters, including at least 200 signatures from at least three different congressional districts to be recognized by the NCSBE, which is a panel of five election administrators and an executive director chosen by the governor. Individual candidates can also submit signatures in order to appear on the ballot, though they must collect signatures from 1.5% of registered voters in order to qualify. To keep ballot access, parties must win 10% of the vote in the state's gubernatorial and presidential elections. If not, they must reapply to regain NCSBE recognition and appear on the ballot in successive elections. State law requires that these documents be submitted by July 1 in every election cycle so the board can review them ahead of the November ballot preparation process that takes place in August. A majority of the NCSBE's members must vote in favor of recognizing parties and candidates and certify the validity of the signatures they obtained before they can appear on the November ballot. Back in 2018, the NCSBE officially recognized the NGC NCGP, granting them ballot access through the 2020 presidential and gubernatorial elections. During this time, the NCGP ran several candidates for local and federal office, never meeting the 10% requirement. Green Party presidential candidate Howie Hawkins won just 0.22% of the vote in North Carolina in the 2020 presidential election. As a result, the NCSPE revoked the NCGP's recognition, forcing it to reapply for ballot access ahead of the 2022 midterms, where they plan to field candidates in the U.S. Senate race and several House races. Many states have imposed signature requirements and other access barriers to the balloting process. Reason has previously reported on how neighboring Georgia's similar ballot access laws designed to bar communist candidates from appearing on the ballot have stymied the emergence of third parties and the prospects of their candidates. These laws, which usually require prospective candidates to collect signatures from their local area in support of their candidacy, have raised the bar to entry for electoral politics dramatically for fledgling parties. Back in 2005, the North Carolina Libertarian Party experienced similar challenges staying on the ballot, though these issues were eventually resolved out of court. Even when candidates achieve the requisite number of signatures, like in North Carolina, they can often find themselves mired in investigations over the validity of those signatures. The same strategy is also used within political parties themselves to insulate incumbents 
and discourage primary opponents from successfully mounting insurgent campaigns. The Board of Elections opened an investigation in June after various county and state elections administrators claimed to find, quote, irregularities in the signatures collected by the North Carolina Green Party and its candidates for the November midterm ballots. These irregularities prompted the board to deny the party recognition and bar Green candidates from appearing on North Carolina ballots in November as it investigated additional claims that signatures were forged and or duplicated. The Green Party responded with a lawsuit accusing the board of denying Green Party voters their rights to, quote, cast their votes effectively to speak and associate for political purposes, to grow and develop their political party, to petition, and of their right to due process as guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. A federal judge is expected to rule on the matter in the coming days. Quote, NCSBE has never produced evidence of any irregularities in NCGP's petitions to NCGP, nor has it provided NCGP with any opportunity to defend the validity of the signatures on its petitions or the integrity of its petitioning process, the Green Party argued in a July 22 court filing. They argued that the board's slim Democratic majority bolsters the Democratic's nominee for U.S. Senate, Sherry Beasley, a former chief judge of the North Carolina Supreme Court, who Democrats see as one of their best hopes for expanding their slim Senate majority. North Carolina's Senate seat is one of the most competitive Senate seats up for grabs in the 2022 midterms. Incumbent Senator Richard Burr pledged not to run for re-election, opening the door to a contentious Republican primary. Ultimately, Republicans nominated Representative Ted Budd, who former President Donald Trump endorsed. A 538 polling average shows that the race is tight, with Budd barely outperforming Beasley in most polls. Green Party officials called into question the origins of the complaints, which they have tied to Democratic field organizers in the state and staffers employed by North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat. They also raised alarm bells after Elias Legal Group, a group of activist lawyers that had supported Democratic candidates in election law disputes, began backing the Board of Elections decisions and representing Democratic activists who allegedly harassed Green Party members and candidates. Despite the recognition decision, the Board of Elections has said little about its next steps. Quote, because the deadline in state law for submissions of new political party nominees has already passed, it is unclear whether Green Party candidates will appear on the November 8 general election ballot, the board said in an August 1 statement. Instead, the board seems content to wait out the judge's ruling and act from there. Quote, ballot preparations begins in mid-August, so there is still time to add Green Party candidates to the ballot if the court extends the statutory deadline. And here's a brief piece published at ballot-access.org outlining the judge's decision in this case. This is by Richard Winger. On August 5, U.S. District Court Judge James C. Deaver issued an opinion in North Carolina Green Party versus North Carolina State Board of Elections. It puts the Green Party's 2022 nominees on the November ballot. Although the State Board of Elections on August 1 had recognized the Green Party as a qualified party, the candidates still weren't on the ballot because the state law says their names must be certified by July 1 of an election year. 
The candidates were chosen by convention and the party had met this deadline, but the board hadn't recognized the party by July 1, so without this federal court order, the candidates would have missed the deadline. The order says the July 1 deadline is a severe burden under the circumstances of this case. The order also expresses the view that the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution, giving higher standing standing to federal laws that contradict state laws on the same subject, will not allow any state court to remove the party. The order also grants the National Democratic Party the ability to intervene in the case so that if the National Democratic Party wants to appeal to the Fourth Circuit, even though the board doesn't, the Democratic Party can do that. The order examines the evidence concerning disputed signatures and determines that the number of disputed signatures, when subtracted from the number of signatures submitted, does not change the state board's decision that there are enough valid signatures. And these stories has outlined what is a a constant battle for the Green Party and other quote-unquote third parties, of which there are many, um, to try to get onto ballots, to try to stay onto ballots, and to try to get candidates' uh, petition signatures accepted. The thresholds and the rules and the guidelines that are built and passed by state legislatures to govern elections and set the limits and set the requirements are often exceedingly burdensome for the parties. Um, Burdens that the major parties would sometimes not even be able to achieve in the same time frames. But those major parties, due to the fact that they have standing, long-term standing, and generally garner relatively significant amounts of votes in the elections, do not need to meet the same requirements. And these are just some of the more hidden, the the less visible, the less spoken about um, voter suppression tactics that are out there. We get a lot of or a lot more um, discussion and a lot more um, amplification of voter suppression efforts, of certain types of voter suppression efforts, specifically or more commonly when undertaken by Republicans. Um, to reduce the number of polling places, to reduce the access to uh, ballot drop boxes, to reduce the access to voting by mail, um, or to institute strict voter ID laws. These are some of the, the, the types of voter suppression that get more attention, more media attention, while these other existing kinds of voter suppression that are in some very, very blue states. New York State has some of the harshest limits and restrictions and and, um, highest thresholds to achieve for third parties trying to get access in that state. Also for registration. Uh, Registration needs to happen way beyond, way before the elections, whereas other states often have same-day registration or registration within a relatively short amount of time before the election itself. So our democracy is challenged and our elections are challenged due to all these rules 
that have been imposed and are attempting to be imposed. Here's a piece published at commondreams.org, this piece by John Lawrence. Noam Chomsky's opening remarks to the World Social Forum, April 29, 2022. For 20 years, the motto of the World Social Forum has been, Another World is Possible. As we meet today, that question is overshadowed by another one. Is this world possible? And the answer is no. This world is not possible. This world is hurtling to self-annihilation. And only the creation of another world can reverse this course. Luckily, another world is still possible, though the chances of achieving it are diminishing at an ominous rate. The fate of humanity is at a crossroads. Humanity is confronted with two imminent existential crises, climate catastrophe and nuclear war. The corporate capitalist system is producing an assault on the Earth's ecology, perpetual war, ever-widening inequality, an attack on democracy, and a rise in fascism. If humanity does not address these crises now, human civilization is unlikely to survive for future generations. Capitalism is complex and produces a multitude of oppressions. There are thousands of liberatory organizations working on important issues, but we cannot assume these projects are going to organically coalesce into a whole capable of taking power from greed-driven corporate capitalists. In the face of these existential crises, our time for organizing the organized is short. The fundamental question facing humanity is, how can ordinary working people organize on the mass scale necessary to contest for power with the corporate capitalist elite and force the change needed to save the future? This essay is beginning to attempt to answer the question with a focus on organizing in the U.S. In addition, it is a call for a, quote, left dialogue regarding the, quote, organization to scale question. We need to imagine the mass organizing institutions needed both nationally and internationally for working people to contest for power. Corporate capitalism, the existential threats, and the common sense solutions not taken yet. Global corporate capitalism led by the hegemonic state, the United States, is a fundamentally immoral and irrational system. In capitalism, both states and corporations are designed to maximize short-term power and profits for the super-wealthy corporate elite. The ideology assumes the benefits will trickle down to working people. In practice, capitalism prioritizes short-term profits for the wealthy over the well-being of people and even the survival of the human species. In all realms of society, corporate capitalism is unable to take common-sense actions to prevent predictable crises when doing so undermines short-term power and profits. For example, fortifying the seawall in New Orleans to prevent flooding when hurricanes hit, regulating factory meat production to prevent the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, organizing a strong global public health system to prevent pandemics, outlawing automatic and semi-automatic guns to prevent massacres, 
eliminating debt-driven speculation that has repeatedly crashed the global economy, using diplomacy to prevent foreseeable wars. Likewise, the apocalyptic threats of climate catastrophe and nuclear war are worsening, and capitalism is not taking the bold action necessary to stop humanity's march towards species self-annihilation. Global warming is destroying the capacity of the Earth to support humans and other life. Distinguished climate scientist James Hansen recently summarized the science from an expert report he had prepared for the court case, Juliana v. United States, in which a group of young plaintiffs sued the government for not protecting their right to a livable future. Man-made greenhouse gases, mostly CO2, are trapping heat in the Earth's atmosphere at an accelerating rate. A 2022 report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, stated that humanity must take swift action to limit global temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Global greenhouse emissions must start declining before 2025. The longer humanity delays decisive action, the greater the risk that progressive climate warming will become irreversible. There are almost daily reports of dramatic changes in the Earth's environment, indicating that the climate catastrophe is accelerating now. The possibility of an omnicide nuclear war has also been increasing. There are currently nine countries with nuclear weapons. The launch of one nuclear weapon can trigger a series of retaliations, resulting in a global nuclear holocaust. Over the last 70 years, there have been multiple close calls in which the decisions of one person averted nuclear war. With both Democratic and Republican support, the United States has committed to modernizing its nuclear weapons arsenal, triggering a new global nuclear arms race. At the start of 2022, before the Ukraine war, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which maintains the doomsday clock, warned, quote, The clock remains the closest it has ever been to civilization-ending apocalypse because the world remains stuck in an extremely dangerous moment. Moreover, the current proxy war between the United States and Russia greatly increases the likelihood of the accidental or purposeful use of nuclear weapons. A nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia would end human civilization. Undoubtedly, the doomsday clock will tick closer to midnight in 2023. The good news is humanity can prevent these crises and in doing so, create a more democratic, loving, caring, and sustainable society. IPCC Chair Ho Sung Lee reported, quote, We are at a crossroads. The decisions we make now can secure a livable future. We have the tools and know-how required to limit warming. The solution to the climate catastrophe is a government-led third industrial revolution that quickly transitions the oil, gas, and coal-powered economy to a solar and wind-powered economy. The principal technological challenges to implementing a global Green New Deal are 1. Building the solar and wind energy generation capacity to power society. 2. Creating a digital energy grid for managing intermittent energy across the system. 3. Upgrading buildings, transportation, and other infrastructure to support and be compatible with the new green energy system. And 4. Dismantle the old oil and gas and coal industries while safeguarding a just transition for workers in those industries. 
The GND is potentially the basis for a high-wage, full-employment economy, empowering workers for decades to come. Many authors have described the possible nuts-and-bolts implementation of the GND. The solution to preventing a nuclear war omnicide is developing international peace agreements and institutions for implementing the agreements based on the concept of common security. Quote, the idea that nations and populations can only feel safe when their counterparts feel safe. The ultimate goal is nuclear disarmament. International peace groups have recently released a Common Security 2022 report, which details many common-sense steps that can be taken to achieve common security. During the Cold War, pressure from the international peace movement pushed the U.S. and USSR to negotiate a series of nuclear arms control treaties that reduced the risk of nuclear war. Part of the context of the build-up to the current war in Ukraine was the U.S. unilaterally withdrawing from several of these nuclear arms control treaties. Possibly the war in Ukraine could have been averted if the U.S. and EU would have been willing to reach a negotiated settlement that took into consideration Russia's security concerns. The Attack on Democracy and the Politics of an Action Despite the available common-sense solutions, politicians and corporate elites are not taking the necessary steps to avert catastrophe. The United States, a dominant nation-state in the world system, is leading humanity down a path of self-destruction. The two-party political system in the U.S. is controlled by a very rich corporate capitalist ruling class. The ruling class in particular, factions associated with the fossil fuel, military, and financial industries, oppose addressing the climate and nuclear war crises because it would undermine their wealth and power and possibly the dominant position of the U.S. in the global capitalist system. At this historical moment, the Republican Party's top concern is its own perceived existential threat. The demographics of the U.S. are changing. Republican strongholds such as Georgia and Texas are hitting the tipping point in which whites are no longer the majority. The Republicans fear that their coalition of the rich, white, Christian nationalists and white populists is not large enough to maintain their power democratically. Consequently, they are committed to dismantling democracy and institutionalizing a form of minority rule. The January 6, 2021 coup attempt was just the most dramatic manifestation of a party-wide commitment to ending democracy in the United States. As described by voting rights reporter Ari Berman in Mother Jones, since 2020, the Republicans have been implementing a slow coup. Emboldened by the ultra-conservative Supreme Court, which declared political gerrymandering legal in Republican-controlled states, the Republicans are creating the legal foundations for a new Jim Crow minority rule with four primary strategies allowing the rich and corporations to spend unlimited money in elections, literally buying politicians, extreme gerrymandering, voter suppression laws making it more difficult for people of color and other disenfranchised groups to vote, and ensuring that election counts are under the administration of Republican-appointed election officials. With a rigged electoral system and control over the Supreme Court for at least the next several decades, Republicans are emboldened to remake the U.S. in their image. The repeal of Roe v. Wade is just a step towards their goal to dismantle human and civil rights. A series of Supreme Court rulings over the last decade 
has been building the legal foundation for authoritarian rule in the U.S. To many Democrats, the Republicans appear crazy and disconnected from reality. QAnon, Stop the Steal, Anti-Masks, Anti-Vaccinations, and White Supremacist History Denial are all obviously factually wrong. Even crazier, the Republican anti-public health stance seems self-defeating, causing tens of thousands of deaths among Republicans. However, the Republican culture of crazy is a political choice. It immunizes Republican opinion from counterfactual information and creates a narrative in which the Republicans, specifically white people, are the defensive victims. It is an ideological framework that energizes high citizen engagement and justifies radical action, including violence. Tragically, the Democratic Party is not a clear alternative to the Republican Party for promoting multicultural, multiracial working class interests, defending democracy, or protecting the earth. The Democratic Party coalition is made up of Silicon Valley and Wall Street elite, the suburban professional managerial class, and multicultural working class base. The essential contradiction of the Democratic Party is that the rich fund and run the party while its voting base is a multicultural working class. Thus, the common dynamic in the Democratic Party is that the progressive wing pushes for legislation to empower the working class, while the corporate wing cooperates with Republicans to stop reform. Gridlock prevails, frustrating working class voters. This dynamic is played out again under the Biden administration. When Biden was elected, there was hope his administration would address working class priorities. Senators Manchin and Cinema refused to overturn the Senate filibuster to pass the Build Back Better bill. Working people would have benefited from Build Back Better in many ways. The bill created over 7 million jobs over 10 years, funded free preschool for children and free community college, expanded Medicare and Medicaid, lowered prescription drug costs, made child tax credits permanent, created 12 weeks of paid family leave, invested in affordable housing, and gave incentives for buying electric cars and other climate initiatives. Without the passage of Build Back Better at the end of 2021, a pandemic child tax credit that was giving 35 million families $250 to $300 a month expired. Regarding inflation, according to progressive economist Robert Poland, the Federal Reserve's recent interest rate hike is another example of government's policy that prioritizes the interests of the rich over the working class. The Fed interest rate hike is designed to increase the unemployment rate, which will decrease workers' bargaining power and thus lower worker wages. This policy undermines labor organizing and increases the likelihood of a recession. It also does not address corporate causes of the inflation, including disruptions in poorly planned supply chains and monopoly price gouging, particularly by oil companies. The corporate Democrats are not organizing a serious fight back against a Republican attack on disenfranchised groups and democracy. A Republican Senate filibuster killed two voting rights bills. Many voter rights advocates have expressed frustration with the Biden administration's refusal to forcefully lead on the defense of voting rights. Again, the problem is that robust voting rights would empower the multiracial working class majority thus threatening the interests of the corporate elite in the Democratic Party. The corporate Democratic elite cannot create the political condition in which voters could actually demand that the Democrats deliver on policies that are highly popular among its base, 
because those policies are opposed by their rich donors. Even on core values such as the right to an abortion, corporate Democrats have a long history of prioritizing collegial cooperation with Republicans over fighting for fundamental rights. The corporate Democratic elite view Bernie Sanders' attempt to unify the party based on a multiracial working-class agenda as an existential threat to their power. In the 2022 primaries, corporate Democrats and Republican political action committees have worked hard to defeat progressive candidates. As an alternative to class politics, corporate Democrats have promoted a unifying Cold War-like narrative demonizing Russia, glorifying militarism, and, quote, defending democracy, U.S. hegemony, globally. The corporate Democrats believe they are more responsible stewards of the global capitalist system than Trump. From their perspective, this is evident in their willingness to, quote, stand up to Russia. Demonstrating this resolve, the Biden administration refused to negotiate regarding the possibility of Ukrainian neutrality in the lead-up to the Ukraine war. We don't know if a settlement could have been reached, however, a diplomatic effort that addressed Russia's primary security concern was not even tried. In sum, the two-party system functions as a racist divide-and-conquer strategy that breeds conflict, anger, cynicism, and alienation. Because neither party clearly represents the multicultural, multiracial working-class interests. Politics is dominated by the Republican culture war, scapegoating people of color, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, and women. Many working people never see their interests represented in the system and stop voting and participating in politics. Over the last 40 years, the country has moved rightward. In a speech given in 2018, Angela Davis reminded us that an alternative politic centered in the common interests of the multicultural, multiracial working class is possible. She stated, quote, Feminist theories and organizing approaches have helped us understand the deep connections that link struggles. Given the demagoguery emanating from our current government and the explicit exploitation of racism and xenophobia to persuade poor, working-class white populations that their interests call for an attack on racialized communities. It is important to point out that the suffering of poor, white, and working-class communities has been caused pretty much by the same economic phenomena that are responsible for the rise of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, and for the reasons that lead people from Central America, Mexico, elsewhere in the global south to migrate to other countries. Toward a multicultural, multiracial, working-class, united progressive front and the campaign to save the future. This moment demands the formation of a united progressive front, UPF, a unified coalition of progressive civic, human rights, and labor groups, independent of the Democratic Party, to launch a campaign to save the future. Both the Republicans and the Democratic Party are pushing the world towards self-annihilation, only a movement organized in a mass democratic institution committed to representing the interests of the supermajority, multicultural, multiracial, working class can inspire the hope, participation, discipline, and solidarity necessary to force system change now. The great challenge the left must take on this is to develop a mass unifying social change strategy in the context of the sclerotic two-party system designed to preserve capitalist power and prevent social change.
Historically, the U.S. left has failed this task. It is this generation's historical mission to try again and succeed. As Marx wrote, quote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The 2022 and 2024 elections are incredibly important. Without a massive Democratic turnout to stop the Republicans in 2022 and 2024, the Republicans will further rig elections and solidify their domination of government for at least a generation. With Republicans in power, humanity has little hope of stopping the climate catastrophe. In early primaries, Republicans are turning out at a higher rate than Democrats. In the short run, the UPF must focus on organizing the mass voter turnout necessary to defeat the Republicans. People will act as if they understand the stakes in 2022 and 2024, and if they believe the multiracial working class has the mass institutional capacity and solidarity necessary to be effective. In 2020, many voters said, I like Bernie's ideas, but I don't think he can win. What they were saying is, I don't think the multiracial working class has the institutional capacity and solidarity necessary to battle capital. Mass action and a common political agenda inspire hope and participation. For example, millions of people acted in the Black Lives Matter protests. We need to institutionalize that spirit so the people can act in unison day in and day out. Everyone must understand that mass voting is a necessary but not sufficient tactic for defending democracy and saving the world. The multiracial working class is the majority. If we vote en masse, we win. The UPF will need to democratically decide on clear demands, a media campaign, a get-out-the-vote campaign, and street mobilization strategy. Clear demands will put pressure on both the Democratic and Republican parties. For example, the UPF can have mass rallies demanding the government and FED maintain a full employment economy and fight inflation by stopping monopoly price gouging. As a mass multiracial working class voting bloc independent from the Democratic Party with a street presence, the coalition will have the power to pressure the Democratic Party to address core working class demands. If the multiracial working class regularly voted en masse, it would dramatically change U.S. politics. Some will argue that it's useless to organize for the election because the Democrats are not much better than the Republicans or the left should focus on labor instead of electoral organizing. There is some truth in these arguments. However, we need to organize in the world as it is. There is no possibility that the Republicans will ever address the climate nuclear war crises. The Republicans are fundamentally committed to climate change denial, militarism, racism, attacking immigrants, and replacing democracy with authoritarian rule. Also, it is difficult to imagine how organized labor can make gains under a Republican administration. Historically, mass people's movements have been able to pressure the Democrats to pass some progressive policies. In the two-party system, the multicultural working class has two main enemies the corporate Democrats, and the corporate Republicans. The left does not have the power to beat them at the same time. The strategy implemented by Sanders and the squad is to take the corporate Democrats on in the primaries and the Republicans in the general election. It means making defensive votes when an offensive vote option is not available. 
it is harder to motivate people to vote in defense of elections. Working people are more likely to turn out for every election if they understand that mass voting is part of the UPF's long-term strategy for contesting for power with a capitalist class. In the long run, if the UPF can organize a supermajority multiracial working class voting bloc, it can then decide whether the best strategy is to take over the Democratic Party or form a third party. To save the future, the people of the world must defeat a capitalist ruling class led by the United States, which is hell-bent on destroying the earth. Unfortunately, this is not hyperbole. In the U.S., that means organizing the multiracial working class unity necessary to stop the authoritarian Republican Party from taking power and killing democracy, and an imperialist Democratic Party, which is prioritizing U.S. global hegemony and militarism over saving democracy and the planet. I will end with an example of an on-the-ground call for unity. In 2022, dark money political action committees such as a PAC tied to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee have spent historic amounts of money to defeat progressive candidates in competitive Democratic primaries. For example, in Pennsylvania Congressional District 12, PAC spent over $3 million in a failed attempt to defeat progressive candidate Summer Lee. Lee won by less than a percentage point. Summing up lessons learned from the campaign in an episode of the podcast Block Party, Justice Democrat Campaign Director Jeff Simpson stated, quote, The biggest lesson we can take away from this is there is very little margin for error if we are going to get millions of dollars spent against us on the left, and it took the whole left throwing down for summer in order to get her across the line. That is what it is going to take in future races, all of us working together to defeat the other side that has an endless bank account. They can spend unlimited amounts of money. On what can we do better? The left needs to commit earlier in races. Early money is worth so much more than getting money in the last two weeks. It allows you to build campaign infrastructure. It allows you to plan out how you're going to spend those dollars talking to voters across the different mediums that are available. We need the left to get in sooner on races and invest early, and that is going to make us more successful at the end of the race. Facing our current reality is terrifying. It is understandable that as individuals and communities, we struggle with isolation and hopelessness and focus on day-to-day -day survival and distractions to get by. After two and a half years of the pandemic and a criminally negligent corporate and government response, People feel disheartened and alienated. But our private lives are not a respite from reality. We are living through a pivotal moment in human history. We are responsible to our children's children's children to organize a united liberation movement despite the odds. The antidote for our collective existential fear is a mass unified organizational plan to defend democracy and to force the implementation of known technical solutions to the climate and nuclear war catastrophes. Victory will be found in mass institutionalized solidarity. And finally, for this episode, piece published at blavity.com. This piece is written by George Johnson. Dear white people, here's your reminder that black people are not your mule. As the country is grappling with the leaked Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, 
increasing legislation against LGBTQ plus people, and the gutting of voting rights. Black folks are simply trying to survive an America that continuously threatens our very existence. These same legislative changes will also have ramifications on non-black communities across all demographics and identity lines. Despite the number of white people and non-black people of color these changes will affect, black people are still expected to be frontline soldiers in the fight against oppression, while those in other groups sit on the sidelines demanding us to be their savior. For black folks, protesting has been an essential part of any change that has happened in this country. For centuries, black folks have mobilized time and time again against an oppressive society that has deemed us non-deserving of equity or equality with white people. Despite this, we have always found space for the protection of others within movements, while historically seeing white folks and non-black people of color ignore our plight. However, there has been a growing expectation and demand from non-black people that we should be obligated to do more for them when the oppression finds a way into their lives. The expectation of black people being the arbiters of change isn't by chance, but by design. I can recall during the 2016 election, black voters were blamed for voting numbers not matching the turnout for former President Barack Obama. Fast forward to 2020, Black folks came out in abundance to, quote, save the nation, only for non-black groups to take credit for President Joe Biden's victory, while simultaneously watching our rights continue to be trampled upon. And yet, there is still the underlying expectation that black folks save this nation from itself again in November, a nation that has yet to see our humanity. Even worse, criticism often comes from those who believe they are, quote, not like the other white people, all while still being a part of our oppression. I remember when Hillary Clinton was running for president. White women in droves went to the gravesite of white feminist icon Susan B. Anthony and put their I Voted stickers on it. Anthony, known for her fight to secure the rights of white women to vote, is also known for notoriously saying, quote, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. It is that same energy I am seeing as white feminists criticize black women during the fight against Roe v. Wade. There is this expectation that those who face oppression need to be the ones to lead us out of it under the notion that we, the people being most harmed, are responsible for teaching the abuser out of their abusive ways. Watching white women feel, ent feel entitled to black women's labor during movements is a reminder of how deeply seated white supremacy is. Even on issues that affect us all, white folks feel they have dominion, but not to lead the fight. Additionally, they seek to bully those more oppressed than them to fight these battles, while they will ultimately reap the most rewards and privileges. There was also criticism against black people for not doing enough to stop the growth of anti-Asian hate. Many highlighted how this request ignored a long history of anti-blackness from Asian communities, but also disproved the myth that we hadn't been working with Asian communities for decades against systemic racism and hatred. Yet and still, there is always an underlying belief that we must fight for everyone else despite being beyond the capacity to even fight for ourselves some days. 
For black LGBTQ plus people, this ideology of expending our labor for the protection of all is no different. It has taken us decades to correct the history of the Stonewall riots, a black and brown led fight that started the movement towards LGBTQ plus rights in the world. We have watched how the riots we led granted even more privileges to our white counterparts while leaving us to deal with the aftermath. We have often watched white queer people wield the power of their whiteness to advance themselves and their causes while ignoring the plight of others they share queer communities with. While white queer people made marriage equality their platform, black queer folks were still fighting for survival, often against these same white queer folk. This is a reminder to all who are not black but expect us to continue to put our lives on the line for you. Black folks are not your mules. If black folks don't have it in them to do a thing but wake up and attempt to live in this racist anti-black society, you have no right to demand that they need to do more on your behalf. Furthermore, the question becomes, what have you all used your privilege for to ensure the safety and rights of those who come from black communities? Posting black squares on Instagram isn't enough. A retweet here and there isn't enough. When the rights of black folk are under attack, it is on non-black people to not just align with us, but to be on the front line against our oppressors. Black folks are tired. And although many of us continue to wake up every day and do the work to fight against oppression, just as our ancestors did, we can no longer accept the demand to save this nation or groups of people who have rarely or ever been the leaders of ending our plight. We are not your mule. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can check out all the back episodes and more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. It was Friday night. So on Friday nights, a Catholic worker tradition in the houses all over the, on everybody's kids. Friday night's an education night where you, where you talk. There's a talk, somebody speak, and you discuss issues. Hammond Hennessy was inclined to talk about people that he had known. Well, he'd known Eugene V. Debs, was in jail with him in Atlanta Federal Penitentiary during the First World War. He had known Clarence Darrow, and he, or he'd talk about Lucy Parsons. You know that name? Oh, boy, I'm glad some people know Lucy Parsons. Lucy Parsons, one of the founders of the IWW in 1905, she was the one who stood up at that convention and said, never be deceived that the rich will permit you to vote away their wealth. All right, get that tattooed on your forehead. Yeah, I remember one, one time, this pops into my head, one Friday night, Ammon told about how, see, Lucy Parsons, she was at the Haymarket. Her husband, Albert Parsons, was one of the Haymarket people at the beginning of the fight for the eight-hour eight day, 1886, May Day. It's where May Day comes from, the first May Day. Well, she lived well into this century. You know, a black Cherokee woman from Waco, Texas, married to Albert Parsons, who had been a Confederate cavalry officer. Figure that one out. 
Ammon Hennessy said he had the job of leading Lucy Parsons to the podium at this big May Day rally in the late 30s. He described her as incredibly ancient, extremely feeble, tiny, shrunken into herself. So he helped her onto the stage, her hair tied back in a neat white bun, deep set, beady black eyes, the image of everybody's great, great grandmother. She hunched over the podium as that multitude grew silent and fixed them with those beady eyes. And she said in a high, barely audible voice, what I want is for every greasy, grimy tramp in the country to arm himself with a knife or a gun and stationing himself at the doorways of the rich, shoot or stab them as they come out. <laughs> well, well, I mean, Ammon was a pacifist, but he sure admired her spunk, I can tell you that. <laughs> 